Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 20. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, this is as far as we're going to get tonight. We're going to actually read a little bit at the end of the of study tonight to, uh, in the verses that are following to get us ready for where we're going to be next week. But I just wanted to start off by just making this statement. We hear a lot of Christians and churches today talking about a coming worldwide revival and how we as Christians are going to change the world. Have you ever heard those phrases, how there's going to be this great revival at the end of the church age and how Christians are going to change the world? Have you ever, a lot of churches even have that as their motto, how Christians are going to change the world. Well, what I want to do tonight is show you the Bible doesn't teach that. Actually, Jesus says that those who make it to heaven are what? Few. And we're going we're gonna to deal tonight with letting the scripture build our theology and not what sounds good to us and learn how to recognize biblical teaching or false teaching. And that's what we're going to deal with tonight. And I, I want you to understand, just because you may like me or not, don't just believe what I say because Jim says it. I want you to check everything I'm saying against the scriptures. The Bible actually tells us that things will not get better on the earth until Jesus returns. And that things will actually get worse and worse until that time. But this false idea will be perpetrated by false teachers and they will increase as we get closer to the end. And so what I want to do is I want to just kind of take you and let you kind of look at Scripture. As you know, we, we take passages of Scripture and then check it against the whole of Scripture to build our doctrine and build our theology. Here Jesus says that the road that leads to eternal life is narrow and there's few that find it. Wide's the path that goes to destruction and many go that way. So if Jesus said there's few that actually make it to heaven... What does the rest of the scripture have to say about that? Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm going to read that whole chapter into chapter 4, verse 5. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, look at what the scripture says about what's going to be happening in the last days. And so, tell me if this sounds like there's going to be a worldwide revival. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, But understand this, Paul says, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men." 
Now you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You see here, does this sound like there's going to be a great worldwide revival in the last days? No, the Bible says things are going to get worse and worse, and there's going to be more false teachers and deceivers. And we need to be faithful to know the Word. That's what he says to him. He look, all Scripture is God-breathed. Timothy, stay solid in the Word. Preach the Word. Live the Word. Teach the Word. Be patient. Do, understand that, that the world may not love it. But you to be faithful to what the scripture says and not what popular opinion is. By the way, <clears throat> remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15 when he said, if they hated me, they'll what? They'll hate you. By the way, did they love the world love Jesus or hate Jesus when he was here? They hated him to the point of putting him to death on a cross. We should not expect the world to love this message. It's an amazing thing that they don't. But at the same time, the Bible's real clear. That we're to be faithful to preach and to live the truth. We're not to try to be offensive. The scripture is offensive all by itself. The gospel's offensive because people's flesh doesn't like it. We want to be in control. We don't want to have to say that there's someone else that's God and not us. And, but we're to lovingly, we, I, I'm not saying to you, hey, they're going to hate it. Go be a jerk. No, 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 no. Keep loving them. Keep sharing with them. Keep pleading with them to respond. But don't fall prey to this mindset of the preaching that's out there that says, everybody's going to eventually believe and it's going to be at the end of the church age, it's going to be a revival and you're going to change the world. I know of churches that actually have that in their vision statement. We're going to change the world. Go to Luke chapter 18. I'll tell you in a little bit later tonight where I think some of these ideas have come from. But go to Luke chapter 18 and again, let's just let the scripture speak as to what it's going to be like in the last days. In Luke chapter 18, look at verse 8. He's talking about this parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge. And he says in verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Does that sound like worldwide revival to you? No, it doesn't. Go to Luke chapter 17. Back up one book. I'm sorry, one chapter in this book. Luke 17, verses 26 through 30. Luke 17, verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah... So will it be in the days of the Son of Man. 
They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. And, but on the day that when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Did you catch that? Again, when the judgment came on the world in the time of Noah... Everybody acted like things were just going on as they normally were, and judgment came. When the judgment came on the city of, of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, they were acting like everything was normal, everything's fine, and judgment came. In the same way, the world is going to be that way until the time that Jesus comes. Well, let me just put it, when it talks about the day of the Lord, and I'll lay this out for you just now uh, briefly, and then I'll get into more detail later on. The day of the Lord, whenever you do a study of the term the day of the Lord, it incorporates the tribulation period and the millennial kingdom. And so when you keep that in mind, it'll help you understand the day of the Lord begins at the beginning of the tribulation period. After the rapture of the church, the tribulation period will begin at some point, and the day of the Lord begins. It begins with wrath and judgment, and then, of course, He comes and sets up His kingdom on the earth. Go to Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> Look at verses 3 through 14. Matthew 24, verse 3. It says, as he, this is Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you're not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and then there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, again, I don't have the time. I'm going to keep reading in just a little bit here. I don't have the time tonight to take you back and show you the scriptures, but look closely at what Jesus says. These are the beginnings of the birth pains. I didn't even realize this until years ago, but that Jesus, I believe, is pointing out specifically to the tribulation period called the time of Jacob's trouble. And there's actual prophecy in the Old Testament that describes the time of Jacob's trouble or the tribulation period, the seven years that are left in Daniel's prophecy, as a time in which Israel will go through labor pains. That's going to be so bad. They even says that you'll see men who are holding their stomach in agony like they're in labor pains. Jesus said this is the beginning of the birth pains. And if you do a study of what Jesus says here when he's asked about the end of the age and his return and parallel it with Revelation chapter 6 and the opening of the seals, you'll see a perfect parallel here between what Jesus is describing here in Matthew 24 and the beginning of the tribulation period. He warns them about false Christ. What's the first seal that's opened in Revelation chapter 6? Do you remember? The man on the white horse, the Antichrist, comes. And then there's a second horse, and that's the red horse, right? And that's what? War. What does he say? There's going to be false Christ, and there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. What's the third horse? The pale horse? Famine. There's going to be famines and earthquakes and all that. He's describing the seals. Folks, this is actually... He's describing the beginning of the tribulation period. And then it says in verse 9, Then they will deliver you to be up to tribulation and put you to death. He's speaking to the nation of Israel, by the way. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. 
And false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Now I'm going to jump down to verses 21 and 22. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those, those days will be cut short. There's a couple things I want to point out from this real quick as we deal with this topic of the fact that the Bible does not teach that there's going to be a great worldwide revival at the end of the church age and that the world's going to be changed. The Bible actually says it's going to get worse and worse and worse. The scripture teaches that God's going to take his church out and then he's going to finish what he promised to Daniel in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 verses 20 through 27. And the 77s are decreed for Israel in the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus here is describing the tribulation period. If you were to read it all, I just jumped around for the sake of time. You'll see that the Antichrist shows up, steps into the wing of the temple, and then things get really bad in the second half. And I just want to just tell you ahead of time, years ago when I started teaching prophecy and studying prophecy... I used to do what a lot of preachers do, where they teach all the different views. There's the pre-tribulational rapture view, and the mid-tribulational rapture view, and the post-tribulational rapture view. And there's the amillennial view, and all these different views of the kingdom, and all this stuff. And I used to try to teach them all, and I stopped doing it for this reason. The more I studied scripture, the more I came to realize that there's only one view that matches with the whole of scripture. And I would never teach you Jehovah's Witness doctrine... You know why? Because I don't believe it's biblical. In the same way, I don't teach the other doctrines anymore, the other teachings, because I don't believe they're biblical. And I want you to understand, because you're going to see this in just a second when I talk about what God does with false prophets. I take very seriously the fact that God has given me a responsibility to stand here and then say, thus says the Lord. And I'll show you scripturally what the Bible says God's going to do to those people who preach falsely, saying, thus says the Lord, when he hasn't spoken so understand that when I teach what I teach about my understanding and my view of what the scripture teaches on what's going to happen to the church and what's going to happen next and all those things after, it comes from years of prayer and study and making sure that I don't stand here saying, thus says the Lord when he hasn't spoken. But the Bible's very, very clear that the church age is going to come to a close. He's going to rescue us from the wrath to come. You'll see that later in our study. And then he's going to finish what he prophesied about the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. If you actually just study this here, Matthew 24, you'll see that he says that when that Antichrist steps into the wing of the temple and declares himself to be God, that they're to not even go back to their house, they're to just get out of Jerusalem as fast as they can. And he said, pray that your flight doesn't happen on a Sabbath. Was he talking to the church when he said, pray that your flight doesn't happen on a Sabbath? No, Colossians chapter 2 verse 16 says, don't let anybody judge you in whether or not you keep a new moon festival or Sabbath day. The church isn't under the Sabbath regulations, but that was to the nation of Israel. He also said, pray that your flight doesn't happen in the winter. Well, if you know anything about what happened on this globe, well, we're having summer, it's winter somewhere else. He couldn't be telling the church to pray against each other. Oh, God, may it be when you come back and all this happens, may it be winter in Australia. No, he's talking to the Jews and what's going to be going on at that time. 
This whole passage is not referring to the church. Oh, and by the way, how many, go back to Revelation, uh, sorry, Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I want to show a hands here. How many of you have been taught and have heard preachers say, as soon as we get the gospel to the whole world, then the end will come? Has anybody ever heard that? Go with me to Colossians chapter 1 real quick. Again, this is why we need to make sure we know our scriptures instead of just listening to the preaching that we hear. Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 23. In Colossians 1.23, Paul says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Wow. It's already been preached in all creation at the time of Paul. Go to Romans chapter 10, a very famous passage where people always say, well, how can people hear unless God preaches? Sorry, unless someone preaches to them. I'm going to let you see. I'm going to read this passage to you in Romans 10. We're going to start in verse 14. I'm going to let you see that Paul's been laying out here that all this stuff that he's been showing them in the book of Romans has already been clearly shown by God. He's been quoting the Old Testament left and right throughout this book. And so when he says, how can someone hear unless someone preaches to him? He's literally saying to them, and you're going to see it in the context. He's saying to them, God would never expect someone to believe something they'd never heard. And he proves that by saying in verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Let me ask you, folks, has the gospel been preached to the whole world? Yes, it has been over and over through creation, through God's spirit revealing men their, 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 lawful, their lawlessness or the fact that they've broken God's law by writing it on their hearts. I'm not saying that we shouldn't still send missionaries because there are generations being born every day, people being born that need to keep hearing the gospel. and We should still be going out and telling people. But don't think for a second that we haven't gotten the gospel to the whole world yet. But when we get the gospel to the whole world, then the end will come. That's bad teaching because it doesn't line up with scripture. Well, what's Jesus mean then that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world and then the end will come? Again, like I said to you, if you read Matthew 24 in the book of Revelation, you'll realize Jesus is actually quoting from Revelation, which hadn't been written yet. But go to Revelation chapter 7, sorry, chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Remember how Jesus has laid out, there's going to be the white horse, there's going to be the red horse, there's going to be the pale horse, there's going to be all these things, and the Antichrist is going to step into the wing of the temple, the beast that's all revealed in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 14, look at verses 6 and 7. This is at the end of the tribulation period. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people, and he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. At the end of the tribulation period, there's going to be an angel that preaches the gospel to the whole world one more time. 
And then the end comes. Jesus was referring to this angel that's going to preach the gospel at the end. Oh, by the way, you know how silly it is to think as soon as we get the gospel to the whole world? Did y'all catch that? That's foolish. Does God need you or me to get anything done? Is he waiting on us to get the gospel to the whole world? Is he up there going, man, I would love to come back, but they just won't get the gospel to the whole world. I remember back when Billy Graham preached to over so many millions of people on television with satellite. And everybody says, now the gospel's made it to the whole world because Billy Graham preached to it. God's bigger than Billy Graham. A little bit. Remember how Jesus, when he was riding in Jerusalem, people were praising him and the Pharisees tell him to stop. He says, if they stop, the rocks will cry out. My stuff will get done. He doesn't need you or me to get stuff done. Folks, build your doctrine on the scriptures. Build your doctrine on the scriptures. Let me show you one more thing. We keep waiting, thinking that as soon as this happens, then this will happen. As soon as this happens, then this will happen. Do you know the day of judgment's already been set? It's not waiting on anything, folks. Go to Acts chapter 17. By the way, this is Lanyap's, not my notes. Go to Acts chapter 17. We'll start in verse 26. Paul speaking to the Areopagus on Mars Hill in Athens, and uh, he's explaining to them about this unknown God that they had an idol set up for or an altar set up for in case they'd missed him. And this God that they didn't know, he says in verse 26, this God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Has the day of judgment, when Jesus comes back, been set? It's already been set. We don't have to wait until the last Gentile gets saved. Just keep sharing the gospel. Keep living what God tells you to do. It's all in motion. God's got it all under control. And stop thinking that we have an effect on it. Let's be honest. I know this is politically incorrect, but hopefully you understand how foolish it is to think that we actually have control over the climate on this planet. You do realize how foolish that is, right? In the same way, though, don't think for a second that you have control over when Jesus is going to return. He doesn't need you or me. He wants you to understand what's coming and understand these end times, eschatology, from the scriptures. The Bible says that things are going to get worse and worse and worse. We're going to be taken away. And he's going to finish what he started with the nation of Israel. Tribulation period. Then the coming kingdom of Jesus on the earth, literally ruling and reigning for a thousand years. By the way, this kind of preaching that's out there that things are going to get better and we're going to change the world and there's going to be this great revival. Do you realize that actually lines up a lot? with what happened to the nation of Israel right before their judgment, when the nation of Israel was going to be judged by the nation of Babylon coming. Go back with me to Jeremiah chapter 6. There's always going to be false prophets saying everything's okay. It's going to get better. 
If you remember our study of Ezekiel, there were a lot of those prophets who kept saying, Babylon's not going to win. Remember that? And Jeremiah would say, no, no, God said Babylon's going to win. Well, you're just in league with Babylon. No, I'm not. I'm just telling you what God says. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 10 through 15. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Therefore, I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I'm weary of holding it in. Pour it upon the children in the street and upon the gatherings of young men also. Both husband and wife shall be taken. The elderly and the very aged, their houses shall be turned over to others. Their fields will and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They didn't even know how to blush. Therefore, they all shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I shall punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Jump over to chapter 8 of Jeremiah. Look at verses 4 through 12. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, when men fall, do they not rise again? If one turns away, does he not return? Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. They have paid attention and listened. I have paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, what have I done? Everyone turns to his own course like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow, and crane keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the rules of the Lord. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors, because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they weren't at all ashamed. They don't even know how to blush. Does this sound familiar? Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Go over to Ezekiel real quick, to chapter 13. Ezekiel 13, I know some of you still shake when I say turn to Ezekiel, but you should be okay by now. Ezekiel 13, look at verses 1 through 16. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say declares the Lord when the Lord has not sent them. And yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, and therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. This is the prophecy about coming kingdom. And you shall know that I am the Lord God, because, priestly, because they have misled my people by saying what? Peace, peace, when there's no peace. 
And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. They say to, say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and the stormy wind will break out, and when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is this coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I'll make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones and wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I'm the Lord. Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall and those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw the visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord God. By the way, do you realize there's preachers out there that say that Revelation's already all happened? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of them that say it was already all fulfilled by A.D. 70. Interestingly enough, the book of Revelation wasn't written until 95. But they try to find a way to theologically make it it was written earlier. Folks, let me just tell you, there are people out there saying that things are going to get better and better. Do you know that the Bible said that that was going to happen? Just like it did to the nation of Israel when judgment was coming? Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at verses 1 through 11. First Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11. Paul says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. By the way, when does the day of the Lord begin? At the beginning of the tribulation period. It also incorporates the millennial kingdom, but the day of the Lord begins at the tribulation period. Real quickly, there are those who try to say that, well, the first half of the tribulation period is the wrath of Satan. The second half is the wrath of God. Have you ever heard that kind of teaching? Let me ask you a quick question. Who opens the first seal? Jesus. I think it's the wrath of God from the beginning, don't you? Actually, let me just tell you something you may not even realize. Romans chapter 1 says that the wrath of God is already being revealed against all unrighteousness. If you read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, that when he talks about how he's revealed himself, his divine nature has been clearly seen through everything that's been made, the men are without excuse. He says the wrath of God's already being revealed. And you know how it's being revealed? As you keep reading in that passage, it goes on and says, when men suppress the truth and ignore the truth, he gives them over to their passions and their lusts and their desires. You want to just go that way? I'm going to let you, and the wrath of God's already been revealed and being revealed in a smaller sense. It's going to be the w, capital W, wrath of the Lord during the tribulation period. But Romans 1 says, the way you'll know that God's given a people or a nation over is that homosexuality will increase. You go back and look at Romans chapter 1, you'll see it. Men with men, women with women, receiving in themselves due penalty for their sins. Listen, folks. The wrath of God's already being revealed against the nation of the United States of America. Is the wrath of God coming on us? I believe without question, according to the scriptures. But it's already begun. As states approve it, as churches say, it's okay and you can get married. As our Supreme Court has allowed homosexuals to marry, the wrath of God's already begun. But there is a time of the coming wrath of God. The Bible calls the tribulation period, which will even at the midpoint get even worse. And it will get so bad at that point, as we read earlier, if God doesn't put a stop to it, if Jesus doesn't come back, there'll be no humans to come back for. 
because everyone will be killed. That's how bad it's going to be. Folks, it's going to get worse and worse until the time of Jesus. Revelation, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 and following. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, what? Peace and security. Then suddenly destruction will come upon, look closely, them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you're all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Did you see that? There's this day, the tribulation period is going to come and begin. It's going to catch everybody by surprise. It's going to catch them by surprise, not us. He's going to be taking us out. He hasn't destined us for wrath. For wrath. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, he says to the church there, which is also to the church is, I'm going to spare you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. It's a message, it's a promise for us. All the way through the scripture, are we to be watching for the Antichrist? Is that what the Bible teaches? No, we're to be looking for Jesus. Go to Titus chapter 1. Go to Titus chapter 1. Look at verses 11 and following. For the grace of God has appeared. Sorry, chapter 2, I'm sorry. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? We're to be watching for Jesus' return. The church will be raptured prior to all this time period. But it's not going to get better and better. It's going to get worse and worse. So where does this false teaching about this great worldwide revival at the end of the church age and the church changing the world, where does that come from? Well, the answer is too large for me to deal with in totality, but I'm going to give you a couple of things tonight. One is this. I think it first off comes from an incorrect eschatology. And eschatology, that word means the study of last things. All right, soteriology is the study of salvation. Pneumatology is the spirit, study of the things of the spirit. Eschatology is the study of end times, last things. And as I've already touched on, there's lots of different views about the end times. By the way, that's why a lot of pastors won't even preach on the book of Revelation. They will say, well, there's so much confusion and so many different views. I don't want to cause confusion and I don't want to get into debates, so I'll just leave it alone. And I always say, wait a minute, that's the only book that says blessed is the one who reads aloud this book. That's the one you're going to skip? But at the same time, because there are those who believe in an amillennial view that there is no literal coming Jesus kingdom on the earth, they believe that the millennial kingdom, if there is a millennial kingdom, is the last thousand years of the church age. That's why certain denominations focus so much on us getting involved in politics. And please don't misunderstand. I believe as Christians, we've been given the responsibility and the privilege to be involved in politics. But don't think for a second that if we change the laws, America's going to become a Christian nation. That's not, that's not how it works. 
But there are certain denominations that focus on that because they think that the church is going to change the world in the last thousand years of the church age. There's going to be this great revival. People are going to follow the will of God and the word of God because they don't believe in a literal coming kingdom on the earth with Jesus ruling and reigning. They think he's just going to rule and reign through the church in the last days. And that's where part of that theology comes from. And they also take a passage in Revelation. Go to there. Go to Revelation chapter 7. And they take it out of context. Go to Revelation chapter 7. Look at verses 9 through 17. I'm going to ask you a question, so look closely at the context. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come I love, I love John's answer. He's, I said to him, sir, you know. He doesn't start with, well, I think. No, he just says, you know what? I don't know, but you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they're, they're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. And the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he'll guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They love to take this passage and say there's going to be all these people, more than we can count, from every tribe, language, people, and nation, and they're going to be worshiping God. Here's the great revival. When do these people all get saved, according to the context? During the tribulation period, not at the end of the church age. During the tribulation period is when all these people are going to come to faith. Oh, let me ask you a quick question. For those of you that studied Revelation and know what the Scripture says, what's going to happen to most of the Christians who get saved during the tribulation period? They're going to be killed. They're going to be martyred because they won't take the mark of the beast and they won't worship the image that's set up. And if you notice, he even says here, what's going to happen during the tribulation? Remember the sun's one of the seals, the sun's going to scorch them. They're going to be spared from that. They've been through the tribulation. These are the number of people. This isn't a great worldwide revival at the end of the church age. This is people being saved during the tribulation period. Again, you've heard the term, church is going to change the world. Does the scripture say we're going to change the world or does the scripture say the world's going to keep getting worse and worse and worse? Well, where do they get this idea then that we're going to change the world? I think they've taken another passage of scripture, not only out of context, they didn't look closely at what it said. Go to Acts chapter 17. Go to Acts chapter 17, look at verses 1 through 9. In Acts 17, verse 1, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, I have a hard time pronouncing that one, in Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on the three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. 
And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set, to the, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jacob, Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Did they say that the world had been changed? No, they said that the world had been turned upside down or made uncomfortable. We're definitely going to make the world uncomfortable. Well, we're not going to change the world. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 7, to our passage of study for tonight, and look closely again at what Jesus says. Look at verse 13 of Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. If you don't mind highlighting in your Bible or marking in your Bible, I want you to make a few marks here. Look closely again at this, what he says in verse 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. If you don't mind highlighting or marking wide, easy, and many. The way that goes to hell is wide, many go that way, and it's easy. But look what he says now about the way that goes to heaven. For the gate is narrow, verse 14, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, let's let the Scripture speak, because what I'm going to do tonight, the time we have left, is I'm going to read to you some Scriptures that are probably going to surprise you a little, because some of you might have heard them, and some of you might not have ever heard them, and you're going to be surprised who said it. But look closely what Jesus said. Those who go to heaven, those who receive eternal life, are few. And the gate's narrow. Oh, don't miss that. The gate's narrow, and the way... Through that gate is hard. By the way, does anybody know who the gate is? All right, so if the gate's narrow and Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one gets to the Father except through me, are there many ways to God? No, the Bible says there's only one way to God and it's very narrow. And few there be that actually find it. As you're going to see in our study next week, there's going to be many who say, wait a minute, we thought we were going through that gate. And he's going to say, no, you're not. We're going to deal with that next week. Why then is going through the narrow gate hard? That may have any idea. Why is going through the narrow? Go ahead, Jim. Because, because of man's pride. Our pride. It requires death to self. Go ahead, Tim. Uh, you got to squeeze. You got to squeeze, yeah. And by the way, being squeezed isn't comfortable, is it? No. Yes, sir. You know what? You are, you are making a wonderful transition to our next scriptures. He just said when Muslims get saved, they lose their family, their heritage, their jobs. Well, guess what? I'm about to read to you 
a bunch of scriptures in the time we have left that are going to be scriptures that you probably have rarely ever heard preachers, especially in America, preaching in our churches. Let me just tell you that right now. Go to Luke chapter 9. Look at verses 57 through 62. Last night, I really felt like the Lord showed me that I was to just read these and not try to preach them because I don't want to try to in, in, in add my flesh to any of this. I think the Word of God's powerful enough by itself. So I'm just going to read these to you. Listen to what Jesus says about the narrow gate. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but we, let me first say farewell to those in my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Three people said, hey, I'm going to follow you. And Jesus says, it's not going to be comfortable. You think it's going to be comfortable, it's not going to be easy. When this guy said, let me go bury my father, it wasn't that his dad had just died and he couldn't go to the funeral. In other words, it was, as soon as my dad dies, then I'll follow you. And by the way, there are a lot of people that were raised by their parents in certain denominations or certain teachings and certain things. And they know what the scripture says about what it means to put your faith in Jesus Christ and be baptized publicly professing your faith in Jesus, but that'll hurt mama or that'll hurt daddy because they raised me in a different way and I was baptized as a baby or whatever. And there are a lot of people that are unwilling to follow Jesus because I don't want to hurt mama. I don't want to hurt daddy. Jesus says, I have to be first or I'm nothing. Let the dead go bury the dead. Go to Luke chapter 12. Look at verses 49 through 53. Have you ever heard a preacher preach this one? Jesus is speaking. If you've got a red-letter Bible, you realize it's in red. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They'll be divided, father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. By the way, we saw that with uh, Ruth and Naomi and Orpah, didn't we? Orpah didn't go, but Ruth did. Wait a minute. Jesus just said What? He said, I didn't come to bring peace on the earth. Didn't come to give peace. Wait a minute, didn't, wait a minute. Didn't, don't we study at Christmas time in Luke chapter 2? Peace on earth? What's the rest of it? Goodwill toward man. Keep reading, keep quoting. To those on whom his favor rests. The book of Isaiah says there's no peace for the wicked. Peace is offered. I've come to offer peace, but I didn't come to bring peace. Actually, because of me, there's going to be division. 
There's going to be families that are divided like you just shared. There's going to be people that, folks, if you really want to live serious about following the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to have people in the church even that don't like it because you know there's weeds among the wheat. We'll deal with that next week. There's going to be actually people in the church that think you're a Jesus freak. Well, you don't have to take that literally, Jim. Folks, there's peace for those who are willing to go through the narrow gate. Those are the only ones that are going to get peace. Go to Matthew chapter 19. Look at verses 23 through 26. Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished because they had been taught that the rich people are the ones God loved. Saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked and said to them, he looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said to, in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, which, by the way, is going to be on the earth, when the Son of Man comes, he will sit on his glorious throne, and you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Again, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to say no to yourself and yes to what he ever he says. And by the way, that's not always easy. As a pastor over the years, I've dealt with families who have dedicated their children when they were babies. But then when God calls those children to be a missionary in Africa, they don't want them to go. I had planned for my grandkids to be around me. And we've even got the property here where they all can live and be comfortable and I had to remind parents many times, do you remember when you dedicated that child as a baby? Maybe we need to do it again. You gave that child to the Lord, and if he wants them to go, you're going to let them go. Let's be all honest. We all, we're going to deal with this more next week, but we all like for things to go the way we want them to go. We want God to do things the way we want. I mean, yes, I know I can't get to heaven without him and thankful that you make me go to heaven, but I still get to call some shots in my life, don't I? Mm. We'll do more of that next week. Go to Luke 14. Go to Luke 14. Look at verses 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now hopefully you all understand that Jesus wasn't saying, okay, to follow Jesus, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, remember when he says in the book of Malachi, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. He didn't hate Esau. If you look at the scriptures, he loved Esau. But he chose Jacob first. And that's the one he had chosen to work with. In the same way, I think it helps when we see that we're also to hate our own flesh, our own self. In other words, he's saying that he must 
be first. Listen closely. Not first and other things are second. He's everything. There is no second. He's all. Everything. And now, as you're going to find out next week, and I'll give you a little commercial so you don't freak out, this is a process of learning to release more and more. We can be saved and then have not given everything up, and God will continue to lovingly take more and take more. He's not expecting you to have given up everything because you're about to read that. He's not expecting you to give it all up in the first day that you meet him. But if you truly have given your life to him and he is your Lord, he's going to begin the good work, he's going to finish it, and he's going to win. And if you're truly saved, I'm just going to tell you now, it's hard to kick against the goads. He's going to win. Keep reading. Whoever, verse 27, does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether there is enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, relax. We spent last week looking at how he loves you and you have more value. If you're truly his, he's going to lovingly get you to that point. But what I also want you to understand is, is does that sound like the invitations that are given in our churches? What we preach nowadays is, y'all come. All you got to do is just pray this prayer. We wonder why our churches are the way they are, as you're going to see next week with the weeds and the wheat, and we're going to talk about all that. We've, we've made salvation, uh, all you got to do is just come. I'm sorry, and drive up window almost kind of a concept, you're right. Yet, what if we gave an invitation that says, hey, before you come, think about it, slow down, just count the cost. You're going to need to be willing to deny self, be willing to die. You're going to have to maybe have family members that don't understand it, and you're going to need to follow Christ anyway. And you can't say that. People won't come. I believe they will. I believe they will. We need to let the Scripture speak. We're going to close tonight with... Matthew chapter 7, the passage we're going to study for next week. But I want to read it tonight and have you begin to study it so that you're ready to go for next week. Look at verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many, is that word many again, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't believe, and I'm just going to give you this now, that these people will be really totally surprised that they're not in. It kind of reads like, wait a minute, I thought I was going to heaven. I'm not going to heaven. Relax, take a deep breath. Remember, his spirit testifies with our spirit that we're his children. And I'll just give you a little commercial as you study this for next week. The evidence that they weren't saved and they knew they weren't saved is, what did they put their faith in? 
then we do this and we do that. But those of you that are truly saved, you know it's nothing you do. These individuals weren't totally surprised. They're, I'm not saying that when you get to heaven, some of you are going to go, wait a minute, I thought I was in. No, you, he's revealed it to you. But you just put more faith in what you did than what he's done. That's a, that's, a work, that's a works relationship. So study that and the passages that come. We're going to carry more than just those two verses next week. But let me also tell you this. He says, those who do the will of my Father who's in heaven, I hope none of you all of a sudden start thinking, well, I'm going to do a better job. Next week I'm going to show you the will of the Father is to surrender to him on a daily basis and let him do what he wants to do through you. Not Just like for getting saved, you can't save yourself. Lord, do it. I'm going to show you next week doing the will of the Father is daily taking your flesh and laying it on the altar and letting him do through what he wants. Now, I'm also going to give you a little warning as well. We're going to deal next week with the fact of, as there are going to be weeds among the wheat in the church, you all should not take the role of deciding who is and who isn't. Just set you free from that. At last, that well, otherwise we'll have to do the lesson on judgment again. You're right. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.